to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. We're kind of at a transition point in the book of Job. So far, up until this point, for the most part, we have seen Job... Well, for the most part, the book of Job up to chapter 4 has been about Job. Uh, for the most part. Not, not totally, but for the most part. Uh, we've seen him go from riches to rags, uh, from good health to extremely bad health, uh, happy to depressed, fulfilled to empty or even worthless, but worst of all, going from hopeful to hopeless. There's nothing I don't believe there's anything worse than hopelessness. And I believe that's exactly where Job got to. Last night, those of you that were at the soup and movie night, um, those of you that forgot or weren't able to come, I'm sorry. You missed a good movie. <laughs> but um, what, what did we do in the middle of the movie? We had, we had an intermission, did we not? When I was a kid, it was, it was um, common, not, not every movie you went to when I was a kid, but it, uh, the longer movies, they always had an intermission. And, you know, like I talked about last night, for the older people, there's a reason for it. Um, but for the younger people like myself, then, um, it was all about getting more popcorn and candy. <laughs> That's the only reason for the intermission for as far as I was concerned. Um, but you had to go out and get in a long line and anyway, <clears throat> tonight we're going to kind of take an intermission, if you would, from the book of Job. Now, we're still going to be in the book of Job, but we're not going to talk necessarily about Job. Okay? Uh, I wanted to kind of redirect, or not, not redirect, but kind of, kind of change our thinking here for one night. Uh, in fact, the title of my message very simply is an intermission. I was really creative on this one. <laughs> but we've spent several weeks talking about Job and his problems. And boy, did he have problems. And oftentimes, I think, we can get so consumed with the problems that we lose focus of other things. Does that make sense? And I just felt like because of where we are in the book, it was a good time to kind of take a break and not focus on Job right now. But tonight, we're going to be talking about Job's three friends. And we're not, we're not going to criticize them. Well, I, I guess in, in a way I may. Uh, um, but... Job's three, three friends, if you're familiar with chapter 4 and following, um, make, they, they make some pretty stark accusations 
um, uh, and even some heretical statements that we'll see. I don't really want to get into those tonight, but I felt it would be good if we got to know his three friends. So, for lack of better terms, I just wanted to take a step back and kind of redirect and take an intermission from Job. And My hope is that by understanding Job's three friends, who they were, where they came from, so on and so forth, will better help you understand the questions that they're about to ask. Does that make sense? Because, let, let me tell you something here, because this is really important. If you haven't figured this out, as you go through life, you are going to meet people that are going to say things to you that are going to be offensive. Has anybody never experienced that? I didn't think so. I had a, an, an experience one time back about 15 years ago. Something was said to me by someone that I had a lot of respect for. Somebody that I, I, I had a lot of respect for. He said something to me that crushed me. Y'all ever been there? And I, 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 was, I was so stunned by what he had said to me. I walked out of the meeting that I was in and I was, I was, I was so stunned that I... I didn't know what to say. Have you ever been there? By someone that I had put on a pedestal. And it hurt so bad. And I went and I talked to a mutual friend of ours and I, I kind of, you know, I kind of told him what had happened and, and, and he said, he said, Rick, let me tell you something. That doesn't sound like so-and-so. He said, I don't know what's going on in his life right now, but I can tell, I can promise you one thing. Something happened that facilitated him saying that to you. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, he hurt me. But later... About two, three hours later, I got a phone call from my friend and said I was right. Just prior to him seeing you, he got some really, really, really bad news. And you just happened to be the first person he saw. Now, did that take away the hurt? No, absolutely not. But did it help? me understand a little bit where it came from. See, oftentimes, 
we say things to people that are hurtful. And to be perfectly honest, they're totally unintentional. And then we say, sometimes we say things wanting to hurt someone, do we not? But when it comes on you, what do you want to do? You want to lash back, do you not? And I am convinced, and the reason I wanted to kind of stop and kind of have this intermission and look at, at, at Job's three friends is, is Job, under, Job knew his three friends. Okay? He knew them. They were, they were friends. And he knew that the stuff that I'm about to share with you, Job knew. And the way we know Job knows what I'm about to share is how Job answers his friends when they make these accusations. Because oftentimes people will quote-unquote give us advice through the lens that they're looking through, not the lens you're looking through. And if you understand that they're looking through a different lens, is it not easier to be more patient with them? Okay, so what I want to do is I want to I want to help us tonight to understand the lenses, if you would, that these three friends, quote unquote, friends, are looking through. These 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 three men were old and probably older than Job. Okay, we don't know that for a fact, but every theologian I read suspected that the three guys were older than Job. We know they were old because of Job 32, verse 6. It says, And Elihu, the son of Barkel, the Buzite, I guess I said that right, Buzite? Okay. Answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Okay, who's he talking to? He's talking to the three, the three, quote-unquote, three friends. Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show mine own opinion. So, we know that the three friends are very old. And the fact that Job goes on to father more children would suggest that Job wasn't as old as his three friends. Does that make sense? So, why is that so important? Anybody? Think of the culture. Why why is that statement so important? John? There you go. The respect for the elders was paramount. You did not disrespect the older people in the in the in the in the communities. So Job here in, in his replies, you're going to see a, rest, a, a restraint of sorts. Now, he's going to be honest in his answers, but he's always going to be respectful. And why is that? Because they're older. Another assumption that we can make is that Eliphaz was the senior member 
of the pack. I, I, I'm going to call them the pack because that's kind of how I picture them. There's a couple reasons why we would think that Eliphaz was the oldest, and we see that in Job chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil this was, that, that was come upon him, that they came, one uh, from uh, his own place, Eliphaz the, the uh, Temanite, uh, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the, the Namanite. Now, <clears throat> why would you think that Eliphaz was the oldest? He's mentioned first. It's a, it's a matter of respect. Another, another way that we believe that he was the eldest is Job 42, verse 7. When God addresses the three friends, who does he talk to? And it, and it was so that after the Lord had uh, spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto who? Eliphaz. So when, instead of addressing the group, who does he talk to? He talks to the elder. The, so, <clears throat> so again, the idea here is that Eliphaz is the oldest. Now, as we go through this, well, we'll, we'll talk about it as, as we go through it. So I, I have a disclaimer here. Now, <clears throat> because I, I don't want to be accused of plagiarism or anything like that, I'm going to be giving you a lot of information tonight. So a lot of the information that I'm going to give you on, on the three friends is not original to me, okay? I got it from different sources and, and, and things. So, so, you know, don't think I'm committing plagiarism here because I'm, I'm trying not to. But at the same time, facts are facts, <laughs> okay? So it's kind of hard to change those. So let's talk about Eliphaz for a minute because Eliphaz... Being, being, we're assuming that he would be the eldest, was a Temanite. And I didn't know this until obviously I started studying, but the Temanites were descendants from a guy named Teman. Does that make sense? Okay, Temanites, Teman. Okay, Teman was known in his day for being extremely wise. And his descendants were believed to possess that same wisdom. So uh, Teman didn't just keep his wisdom, but he passed it down to generation, to generation, to generation, much like Solomon tried to do through the book of Proverbs. And... <clears throat> How do we know that? Okay, thanks for asking. I'm glad you asked that question. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7, it says, Concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom more in Teman? Is counsel, uh, is, is counsel perish from the prudent? Uh, is their wisdom vanished? So, so in Jeremiah, it is verification that the Temanites or Teman was considered a source of wisdom. Does that make sense? Okay, so Eliphaz was a Temanite. So the assumption is that he possessed a certain 
amount or level of wisdom. This is just for information's sake. I throw this out here. It doesn't really mean anything. Um, his name means refined gold, if you're curious. just That's information. The problem is, with Eliphaz, he based his, his speeches, the three speeches that he gives to Job, he bases them off of two things. Now these two things, everyone in this room is guilty of the same thing. He bases his two speeches first on his observations of life, what he has seen. Job chapter 4, verse 8. Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. So his conclusion here is basically you reap what you sow. Is that, is that, is that a simple conclusion of what he says? How is he basing that conclusion? by what he has seen in his life. Now, is that true? What he says. I have seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Okay? Sounds kind of like what what Solomon said, didn't it? Okay? But what is what is Eliphaz basing his 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 opinion on? What he has seen. Not what he has learned. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, turn over to chapter five, verse three. We see it again. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. So again, Eliphaz bases his two speeches on, number one, his observation. The second thing he bases his two speeches on is his experiences. Now I'm going to give you the reference. We're not going to read it tonight because it's a pretty lengthy passage and we don't have time. But it's chapter 4, verses 12 to 21. And he talks about an experience that he had and so on and so forth. So he is basing his speech, his speeches, on two things. His own observations and his own opinions. Or, or excuse me, his own experiences. And the reality is this. You and I do the exact same thing. Now, is that the way you're supposed to do it? No. Why? Talk to me. Really? You're not going to talk to me? Yes, ma'am. There you go. We walk by faith, not by sight. This book should be the foundation of what we do. 
you know, when people come to me for counseling, I try never to, well, I, I, that's not true. I do share personal experiences, but I always try and do it based in this book. Because our observations and our experiences can change from situation to situation. Eliphaz also put great faith in tradition. And in Job chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, he says, uh, which wise men have told from, uh, from their fathers and have not hid it unto whom alone the earth was given and no stranger passed among them. So again, uh, Eliphaz puts great, great uh, faith in tradition. One of the things that you're going to see about Eliphaz as we, as we progress through this is that his God was an unbending and harsh God. Job chapter 4, verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, Whoever perished being innocent. Whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the righteous cut off? What is he saying? Nobody, really? Okay, what he's saying is, as long as I am righteous, I will not die. I will not have anything bad happen to me. As long as I do right, I'm okay. So in other words, if something bad comes into my life, i.e. Job then what, what is the conclusion? Exactly. Eliphaz worshipped a God that was unbending and harsh. Martyrs throughout the centuries can argue that Eliphaz is an idiot. So to speak. That's kind of harsh, but it's not true, is it? Because righteous people down through the centuries have died for no reason other than hate. Righteous people that have done nothing wrong that have died for the cause of Christ. Eliphaz has a very rigid theology with no room for a really precious word called grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, but by, but, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which, is, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God 
which was with me. One of my favorite quotes that I say often is, but for the grace of God, there go I. I cannot imagine how miserable it is to live a life, excuse me, like Eliphaz, where I have to live a righteous life so that God will not curse me and cause me to, to, to fall into the, the depths of despair like Job. That's what Eliphaz is saying. What a miserable way to live. What a miserable, miserable way to live. I feel sorry for Eliphaz. Let's talk about Bildad for a minute. I like this guy's name, Bildad. We can assume that he's the second oldest. Why? Because he's, he's named second, okay? So we, we just assume that. We don't know, but we can assume that. But he's got an interesting name. The name Bildad literally means Hey Dad, which means to shout, okay? Uh, <clears throat> so by studying the way Bildad, and again, we'll get into this as we, as we get through it, but the way Bildad talks to Job, it is easy to see how he would be very insistent and possibly even um, boisterous in his, in his rebuttal, if you would, to Job. He's living up to his name, means to shout. Bildad also is we we will see that Bildad is also what we would call today a legalist. That the that the the list of do's and don'ts is more important than living for God because you love him. The list is what is important to, to Bildad. Nothing is more important than the list. We will find that uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, this kind of a person, the, 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 the legalist, and, and, and let, let me stop right here, uh, take a time out, another intermission. We, we like to throw this word legalist around like it's candy in, 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 in religious circles. If somebody has standards in their life, and they say, you know what? I'm going to live my life a certain way because I believe the Bible teaches that I need to live this way. Anybody who disagrees will call them what? Legalistic. Oh, you're just legalistic. I mean, I've been called legalistic because I walk my dog. No, I'm teasing. Um, no, but seriously, I have been called legalistic because... My wife and I have decided, you know, there are certain things we believe this book teaches that, that we're just going to live a certain way. Oh, you're just legalistic. No, you're carnal. Okay? Let's, let's get the terms right here. That is, that is 21st century definition of legalism is not what this is. This is the person who 
who lives by the law and, and by the letter of the law. And if you step outside of this list of do's and don'ts, you're going to hell. That's how they believe. And that's how this man thought. Job chapter 8, verse 20. Behold, God will cast away, excuse me, will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoer. Again, what is the implication that he's saying here to Job? Okay? He's saying you're not a perfect man because God's casting you away. You see it? Because, because you haven't kept the law. You haven't kept the list, Job. I gave you the list the last time we were here. And you didn't keep it, so that's why you're going through what you're going through. That's garbage. But there are people all around us today living by the list. Eliphaz was another one who put a lot of stock in tradition. In fact, I said, yeah, I said Eliphaz, I meant Bildad. Bildad makes an accusation in chapter 8, verse 4, that is stunning. Job chapter 8, verse 4. If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgressions. What is he saying? He said, he said, Job, the reason your kids died is because they were sinners. They didn't keep the list. Guess what? We'd all be dead. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He seems to have little or no feeling for his friend Job. Eliphaz did not understand grace. Bildad did not understand compassion. Jude, chapter 1, verse 22. And some having compassion, making a difference. See, Bildad didn't understand the word compassion. Eliphaz didn't understand the word grace. And by the way, by the way, let, let me just throw this out here. I, I, I don't know, and, and I can say this because at one time in my life, I was consumed with the list, if that makes sense. There was a time in my life where I thought, if I keep this list, at the end, I will be righteous. I will be holy. I will be accepted by God. But I've got to keep this list in order to do that. I realized one day, that's not true. 
And I realized that, you know what? I keep the list, so to speak, because I want to, not because I have to. Keeping the list makes me religious. But if I live for God, I want to keep the list. Does that make sense? Zophar. I like his name too. I, that's, that's a cool name. Zophar. The baby of the pack. That's what I call him. The baby of the pack. And probably the most unbending of the pack. He speaks to Job like Job is a child. One of the, the, the commentators said it's like a schoolmaster addressing a group of ignorant freshmen, just talking down to, down to Job. Job chapter 11, verse 6. And what he uh, would show thee, uh, the secret of wisdom, that they are, uh, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore, you see the, 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 the contempt in his speaking? Know therefore, Job, that God exalteth uh, of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. What an incredible statement. Know therefore, Job, are you stupid, Job? Job chapter 20, verse 4 says, Knowest thou not this of old, since men have placed, uh, was placed upon the earth? And what, what, Job, this has been around since God created man. Don't you know this? How, how horrible. He was, and we'll see this as we progress through, but he is probably the, the least compassionate or, or has the least feeling as he addresses Job. Just the contempt and the disrespect. Dr. C.I. Schofield said this, Zophar was a religious dogmatist who assumed to know all about God, what God will do in any given case, why God would do it, and all his thoughts about it. Of all forms of dogmatism, this is most irreverent and the least open to reason. In other words, what, the, what, what Dr. Schofield is saying here is, is, is Zophar knew it all. He knew what God was thinking. He knew what God was going to do. And it was almost as though God had to get Zophar's permission to do it. 
And it is when we get it to the point in our lives when we think we know more than God, where God takes us down a notch or two. Now, Zophar is the only one of the three friends that only addresses Job twice. Now, we don't know if, <clears throat> if uh, <clears throat> that is because uh, he just decides that he's not going to, that Job's a hopeless case. We don't, we don't know. We don't know why. Uh, he, he just kind of, maybe he felt like he was just wasting his time. We, we, we don't know. But Zophar is merciless when it comes to addressing Job. Job chapter 11, verse 6. And when he would show thee the secret, secrets of wisdom, that they are doubled that, uh, to that which is. Know therefore that God exalteth... Oh, I already read that verse. Excuse me. Uh, Job chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Knowest thou not this of old, since men were placed upon the earth, but it goes on, that the triumph of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. Did I not give you that verse? Oh, sorry about that. Now, let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Is, is the triumph of the wicked short? Okay. In, in, the, in the light of eternity, yes. But I'm here to tell you, I know a lot of wicked people that are doing quite well. So if his reasoning is right then anybody who is prosperous is what? No, is righteous. Think about that. Think about his reasoning. Let, let me read it to you again so you, it'll kind of sink in. That the triumph of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. That's not true. There are a lot of wicked people doing quite well. Eliphaz did not understand grace. Bildad did not understand compassion. And Zophar did not understand kindness. The other day I was speaking to a pastor friend of mine from California. He called me about two weeks ago and he says, uh, hey, Rick, I, I know you've been going through a lot. He said, I'd like to drive over the mountain because his church is in Sacramento. He said, I'd like to drive over the mountain and spend a little time with you. And I, I said, sure, I, man, I'd love to see you. So, I think it was last Tuesday or Wednesday, he drove over the mountain, and he came over to the house because I couldn't drive and meet him anywhere. 
So he came all the way to my house from Sacramento, sat in my living room for about 30 minutes and talked to Melanie and I. Then we went to lunch. He brought me home and he went back over the mountain. I thought, wow, what an incredibly kind thing to do. And as we were talking at lunch, this idea of kindness came up. Not in the context of what he had done, but it just came up in the, in the, in the context of, of people being kind one to another. And he made a statement that I had... I probably knew, but I just, I, I don't know that I really had connected the dots yet. But he said, you know, I have found over the last year or two that, that some of the most kind things that people have done for me have been the little things. And, and I, I sat there and I thought about it, you know, and I thought, well, you're right. How often are the little things that people do for you, the things that you, you think, wow, that was really kind. Now, what he did driving over the mountain just to spend an hour, hour and a half with me, which was to me was phenomenal. But really, the fact that he just sends me a text every once in a while saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Wow, that, that means a lot. And so often we, we lose perspective that in order to be kind, we have to do something big and spectacular for someone. And really, the truth is, kindness is something that just kind of happens. And it's usually in the form of something small and simple. Zophar didn't get that. He didn't understand kindness. Okay, let's let's bring all this to a conclusion. All three men, we will see that all three men will have good things to say. Not everything that they say is bad. Now, some of the things that they say are bad and foolish. But a lot of what they say is good. Their thinking is unbending. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. I'm going to read a couple of quotes here because I think it's important. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. Their theology was not vital or vibrant, but dead and rigid. And the God they tried to defend was small enough to be understood and explained. Now, I, I read this quote and I went, man. Because somebody who has a faith that is vibrant and alive is excited about the things of God. But when your faith is dead then now all of a sudden you can put God in a box. 
And when you can put God in a box, now all of a sudden I can I can say, let me see what he the, the uh, quote exactly what he said. He said the God they tried to defend was small enough to be understood and explained. Now I don't know about you, but I don't understand grace. That's just one attribute of God. Is there anybody in this room can 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 explain to me grace? I can tell you what it means, but I can't understand it. What about mercy? What what about the fact that God is omnipotent or omnipresent? When you can put God in a box and start to explain Him and understand Him, then you are not worshiping the same God I am. In Job's reply, in Job chapter 6, verse 21, says this, and please get this, because this is critical to understanding the rest of the book. For now ye are nothing, Ye, ye see my casting down and are afraid. For ye are nothing. Nothing. He, okay, get this. Now, in chapter 6, he's, he's speaking directly to Eliphaz, the, the oldest. And he looks at him and he says, You are nothing because you are fearful because you are seeing me being cast down and you are afraid it's going to happen in your own life. Because you believe the, the idiotic things that you just said to me. The fact that a righteous man... Well, let's see, I, I lost it. Anyway... His three friends believed that as long as they could live righteous lives, nothing bad would ever happen to them. And they see their friend Job. What was God's description of Job in Job chapter 1? That he was the most what? Righteous man in the east. And these three friends come to the most righteous man in the East, and they see the fact that he has sinned and he's lost favor with God, and it scares them to death because they are believing a lie. They don't understand grace. They don't understand <clears throat> mercy and truth. Their God is rigid. Warren Mearsby goes on to say this about them. He says, the three men were afraid that the same calamity would come to them. Therefore, they had to defend their basic premise that God rewards the righteous and, and punishes the wicked. Hence, Job was wicked. As long as they were righteous, nothing evil could happen to them in their lives. What a horrible way to live. What a horrible way to live. 
God was able to use Job to undermine their wrong thinking. In Job's replies, we will see that Job undermines their wrong thinking. <clears throat> and the question becomes, and, and this, is, this is really, to me, the key to the book of Job. What do his three friends do with truth? Do they accept it and change? Or do they dig in their heels and say, I'm going to keep living the way I want to live? That is the danger that we all can fall into. We think that we know right. We have, we have educated ourselves. We have, we have done all these things. And now all of a sudden, I know more than God knows. We've put God in a box. And now all of a sudden, we, we know and we can explain Him. And now we can, we can live our lives the way we want to. Job's three friends make a critical error in their judgment. And that is they don't listen to truth. Paul Turnier wrote this. We are nearly always longing for an easy religion. Easy to understand, easy to follow. A religion with no mystery, no <clears throat> unsoluble uh, problems, no uh, snags, a religion that would allow us to escape from our miserable human condition, a religion in which uh, contact with God spares us from all strife, all uncertainty, all suffering, and all doubt. In short, a religion without the cross. Wow, what an incredible statement. Nowhere, nowhere are we promised to live a life with no problems. But, like Bonnie's testified tonight, when the problems come, so, so does peace. When the conflicts come, so does peace. These three friends of Job, I believe, had good intentions. But they didn't understand grace, compassion, or kindness. All they understood was a God that was unbending and unmovable. Excuse me, God was unbending and they were unmovable. And as I was putting all this together, I thought, oh, how very sad. How very sad. I know people just like that who are so consumed with keeping the list, so consumed with <laughs> doing the right thing that they forget that there's a God that loves them, that shows mercy and grace, kindness, and way too often, 
One of the theologians I read um, talked about the fact that today, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have a lot of disciples roaming the earth today. People that are unwilling to bend, unwilling to learn and grow. Is it right to have standards in our life? Is it right to say, okay, enough's enough, and our family is going to live like this? Absolutely, that's right. But when you replace that with now I'm holy, you've crossed the line. There's a lot that we can learn from the three friends. And as we, as we, as we progress into these conversations, we're going to learn a lot. But let's, let, let, let's stop and examine our, our lives for a few minutes. How much of these three do you really see in, in yourself? Yeah, Zophar, the very first one, you know, he, 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 his, his three speeches were based on, on, on what he had seen and what he had experienced. You know what? We're all guilty of that. Bildad, the same way. We're all guilty of some, every one of these three men, every one of us is guilty of, of some of it. Let's not be like that. Let's focus on the cross. I'm trying to think that the, the song of the month, there's a, on the, in the, in the chorus, there's a, there's a phrase in there, something about not focusing on, on me or not focusing on I or something like that. Yeah, that it may that it may be no more I, dear Lord, but Christ. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day.